This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. The most important thing to tell you tonight is that this world is full of second chances. In our life, in our world, redemption is always possible. Hello, welcome to Jack Cornfield's Heart Wisdom Podcast. Nestled so sweetly here in Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network family of podcasts, I am Ganesh Braymiller, welcoming you to episode 223, Redemption Song. This is a brand new podcast, hot off the press. Jack gave this as his first Dharma talk of the new year. This was for Spirit Rock's Monday Night Dharma Talk and Meditation which they do every Monday with various teachers. Jack does it about once a month now. If you enjoy this one, you can join Jack online for his next one on February 19th. If you go to jackcornfield.com and go to events, you will see a registration link. It is pay what you can. So we highly implore you to come and be with Satsang, which is extremely important in these trying times. This one was a real tearjerker. Jack shed some tears, and I definitely shed some tears, and left him a a probably embarrassingly long voice note, just sharing how I love how he tells stories. I remember when I was interviewing Hanuman Das from the Taos Hanuman Temple, just about his times with Ram Das, and he explained to me that Sidima, one of his teachers, very connected with his guru, Nimkaroli Baba, told him once to never tell a story unless he was fully feeling it, unless he was in the emotion and either remembering it or living it within him. And in my voice note to Jack, I shared that I really see Jack embodying that teaching that I learned from Hanuman Das. And I also told him, it made me think of a story I heard in a book about Chogyam Trumpa that I'm reading, that Trungpa was called to lead a eulogy or give a talk for a Zen teacher that just passed to talk to his monastery. And most of the students there had been Basically, you know, trying to bypass and meditate away and not fully feel their emotions for the loss of their sweet teacher. And Trungpa uh, went up to the podium and he 
instead of giving a talk, just wept and wept and wept. And this gave permission to all the students of this sweet teacher to finally let their emotions out. And to me, this is what Jack does in this podcast. He gives permission for us to let our emotions out and to find redemption, redemption in our hearts and forgiveness. And Jack ends this episode with a really sweet surprise. So it's definitely worth sticking around to the end to dive into that sweetness. But before we fire up this episode, I have three announcements to make about what Jack has going on. February 12th starts the next session of Power of Awareness, which Jack teaches online with Tara Brock, Conda Mason, and Devin Berry. This is one of the premier online mindfulness trainings in the entire world, and I highly suggest you check that out and see if that's for you. February 17th, we have an amazing rare occurrence. Jack will be back live at Spirit Rock in person with Trudy Goodman for a day long called Love and Relationships, the Great Spiritual Practice. And if you can't make it in person, we are offering a online version of this where you can zoom in with a live stream. And as I said before, Jack on February 19th has his Spirit Rock Monday Night Dharma Talk. You can dive into all of these and register at jackcornfield.com and go to the events tab. So there we go, fam. I want to thank you for always being here with us and enjoying these sweet Jack Hornfield Dharma Talks. I hope they add as much to your life as they do to mine. I am wishing you a wonderful week of smiles, warmth, all the good stuff that makes you feel like you are worthy and a beautiful human being here on planet Earth. Namaste, y'all. So this first talk of the new year for Monday night for me is about redemption. And redemption is a little bit different than forgiveness, which I also love to teach and talk about. Redemption is making something better or freeing ourselves or someone from the burden of the past, somehow fixing, redeeming, atoning. The reason I picked the theme for this new year is that we live in a world, especially with the modern intensity of modern news, where the visibility and the feelings of conflicts and divisiveness and war and moral dilemmas and ways that humanity is acting in terrible faction fashions, in shootings and genocide, all the kind of painful things that come through our news. There's a question, because some of them are global, and some of them touch us very personally, or we have our own difficulties 
and they're a weight on the heart. The question is, is there a return from this? From all these conflicts and terrible acts? The Buddhist teachings remind you and us, beginning various texts with the words, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. Remember that within you are the seeds of awakening, is the capacity of seeing the world with the eyes and the heart of a Buddha, to see with the wisdom eye and the great heart of compassion. As they say, the question is not so much the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. Can we see with the eyes and heart of a Buddha, the suffering and the beauty and the beginning and ending and the gain and loss and praise and blame, all the ever-changing world? And can we be the loving witness to it? A story I haven't told for a long time but have written about and used to tell regularly happened more than 30 years ago when I was on my way to my father's funeral, our memorial service in Philadelphia. I was going up from D.C. And when I got on the train, I sat next to an interesting-looking fellow. Turned out his name was Robert Brown, and we exchanged pleasantries and what we were doing. And um, when I told him that I'd been a monk in Asia, he said, oh, I'd worked in, he'd worked in India, in the embassy for quite a time. But he left. He, was, he felt like it was still a little too colonialist, the American approach to India and people there. And he'd come back to Baltimore, where he had founded a project that worked with people who were incarcerated, young youth especially. And then he said, can I tell you a story? And of course, I immediately sat up being a collector of stories. And he said, I worked with this woman and her son was killed in a shooting um, by a young man, 14 years old, who did this in order to impress the gang members around him, sort of like a twisted initiation, like a Maasai young man being sent out with a spear to bring back a lion and show what a man he was. Um, he shot this other child. And he was arrested and brought to trial. And at the end of the trial, the mother of this young man stood up just as the perpetrator was being led out of the court, having been convicted of murder. And she looked at him and she said, I'm going to kill you. And sat back down. And that was all he heard. Well, a year later or so, she visited the young man. He was taken aback, but there she was. And they started a conversation. And she brought him some stuff. Kind of a strange thing, but she did. 
And she began to visit him periodically and doing so brought him things that you might need in prison. And they developed a relationship. And after about four years, when he turned 18, he was going to be paroled or left out. She said to him, so where are you going to go? He said, well, I don't really have family. I don't know. And she'd been visiting him more and more. She said, well, I've got a spare room in my house. If you want, when you get out, you can stay there. So he came out and she said, so what are you going to do? He said, I don't know. I, I got to find a job. She said, well, one of the friends of mine has a factory, a place, and he needs some workers. I'll give him your name. Why don't you go over and see what you can do? Sure enough, he got a job. And for the next six months, he lived with her. He began to work. And one day she called him into the living room and said, I need to talk to you. They sat down. She said, remember that day in court when you were sentenced for the murder of my son, my child? He said, I sure do. And I stood up and I said, I'm going to kill you. He said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, I have. I didn't want a young man who could kill someone else in cold blood like this to continue to exist in our city. And so I set about changing you. I brought you money and food and helped you in prison. When you got out, I gave you a place to live. I found you a job. And you're not that person anymore. But I don't have anybody. You're here. My son is gone. You're in his room. And I need somebody too. Would you stay with me for a while? Let me adopt you. Let you be my son. And he did. So this is what Robert Brown told me. And I've told this story. And I have to say, of course, it could make you weep. That, um, Two or three filmmakers have contacted me over the years saying, can I get in touch with this guy? I want to make a movie of this. Didn't happen. You know how movies are. But it asks of our hearts a question as we gaze at the world. Who do we leave out? Who do we forget? Who do we leave behind? And then there's the great Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of Russia's greatest writers. He says, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who among us? is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart. So what is the value of this gaze of compassion and loving kindness? It is the consciousness, it's the conscience 
that leads us to a wiser and more humane life. And even the most terrible dictators and terrorists and uh, the kind of people that we tend to, the warlords that we tend to see causing so much suffering in this world, we have to do all that we can to stop that suffering. But it's also important not to let it poison our hearts. Not to let it in any way demonize our hearts and turn toward whole groups of people or give way to despair. As Gandhi said, when I despair, as he did at times, like the rest of us, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. Yes, there have been murderers and tyrants, and for a time they can seem invincible, but in the end they always fall. Think of it. Always. Without compassion and wisdom, we project it out on them, you know? And so it's the terrorists or it's the people who are shooting the violence in the world or it's the immigrants, you know? But when we look closer, the immigrants, mostly all the refugees are, are related to the pain of global warming and economic disparity. And we worry about gun violence when we have more guns per capita than anybody in the world almost. And certainly we're the largest exporter of weapons in the world across the globe. And then we don't feel safe. And we have the largest prison population. And this is from Brian Stevenson, a remarkable person who, after Harvard Law School, founded the, you know, the Society for Equal Justice. There's a beautiful movie called Just Mercy about him getting hundreds of people off death row who were innocent. And he said, most incarcerated women Women behind bars in cages, nearly two-thirds, are in prison for nonviolent, low-level drug crimes or property crimes. One of the first incarcerated women I ever met was a young mother who was serving a long prison sentence for writing checks to buy her three young children Christmas gifts without sufficient funds in her account. Like a character in a Victor Hugo novel, she tearfully explained her tale. I couldn't accept the truth until I checked the file and discovered that she had, in fact, been convicted under the three strikes law, sentenced to 10 years in prison for writing five checks, including three to Toys R Us. None of the checks was more <laughs> None of the checks was more than $150. 
There are tens of thousands of people in our prisons still for marijuana crimes. You know, so we tend to blame it on others. But I remember sitting with Thich Nhat Hanh. At one point, somebody asked, and we were in a group of teachers, can you tell us about group karma? Why did the Vietnamese end up getting bombed, you know, by a million tons of American bombs? What did they do as a collective that made this happen to the Vietnamese people? And he got very quiet, and his eyes got kind of soft and teary. And he said it didn't happen to the Vietnamese. It happened to all of us. We are tied in that single garment of destiny. So what about our own shortcomings and mistakes? They're still ongoing. I know you. You're not over it. Our fears, our shame, our grasping, or greed or anger or ignorance, our sense of blame ourselves and others on kindness, aggression. You have it, you know. Is the point to get rid of it? Judge it? Remember the Zen poet Ryokan, the most beloved of Japan's poets who wrote, couple of hundred years ago, last year a foolish monk, this year no change. And you can feel the mercy in it. Can we forgive ourselves for being human and hold ourselves too with some graciousness? Take a pause and just reflect on how you hold yourself when you get caught up upset, frightened. <sighs> Can you gaze at yourself with the eyes of compassion as well? Buddhist teachings emphasize the truth of impermanence. No matter what we've been through, it's never too late. We can always start again. The exhortation from Suzuki Roshi is, or the goal of practice, is to always keep your beginner's mind. So one of the most famous stories or myths from the old days is about a man named Angulimala who was a murderer and a serial killer, kind of like Milarepa in the Tibetan tradition. He was brought up in a sort of well-to-do family with a spiritual interest. And then he trained himself. He became a very strong and kind of dynamic young man. And he went to practice with his famous guru, a char charismatic guru, and he became the most successful and favorite student. But the other students, became more and more jealous. And so they began to seed from that jealousy, whisper into the master ear, he's going to outdo you. I've heard that when he does, he's going to kill you and take over. Pretty terrible thing 
But don't think it doesn't happen, by the way. And the master initially tossed it off, but hearing it again from a whole group of different students separately, he became worried and frightened. And he said, what can I do? I don't want to kill anybody, but I don't want him here. And he eventually said, I have an assignment to you, Angulimala, if you want to be truly spiritual and want to be my successor. You're required to go out and bring me back a mala, Angulimala is finger mala. I want you to bring back a mala with the fingers of a thousand people that you've killed. And you will send them to heaven, and then I will let you take over. Angulimala didn't want to do it, of course, but after the master required it of him and kind of brainwashed him in some way. This is what's necessary after all that jealousy and revenge. He went out and he began to do it. And he became this fearsome bandit. Now you listen to the story and you say, whoa, this is an old archetypal story from the old days of India, right? What does this have to do with us in modern time? I'm sorry. It tells the story of suicide bombers who think they're going to go to heaven. It tells the story of religious martyrs. And I don't just mean Muslims. It means Christians. It means other faiths. It means all these weird sects that happen. The people get possessed, spiritually misused. It happens. It's not just ancient Mangulimala. It's happening in the world that we live in as well. That level of revenge and jealousy and spiritual misguidance. So how do we understand this? Well, here Angulimala became the most fearsome bandit, and he'd killed 999 people. He was living in the, the, the deep Jalini forest. And the Buddha was nearby and heard about all this and finally hearing that Angulimala was going to kill the last person, the Buddha decided, I will go. And everybody said, don't, don't go. He's too dangerous. You're putting your life in danger. But the Buddha, of course, being the Buddha, said, this is what I must do. And he found Angulimala. And Angulimala began to run at him with a sword. But as fast as he could run, the Buddha very slowly walked and yet somehow Angulimala couldn't catch up to them by a magic power. Angulimala said, I could catch a swift horse. Why can't I catch you? And the Buddha said, I have stopped. And Angulimala said, what have you stopped? He said, I've stopped harming beings. And in one version, the Buddha said, cut off a limb of that tree with your great sword. And Angulimala did. And he said, now put it back. Your power is so limited, he went on, it can only destroy life. What about the power to cherish and bring life? And at this moment, the nobility of Angulimala that had been twisted changed. I've seen greatness, and he bowed, and the Buddha said, you may follow me as a monk. Angulimala threw his weapons into a pit. And he came back with the Buddha and he scared everybody, even the king of that, how 
we're terrified of this man. But the Buddha said, come and I will introduce you. He's not the same person. But even after he became a monk and practiced not harming, he would go out and people would throw stones at him. And the Buddha said, this is the karma that you have to reap. But then one day he was walking by the house of a woman in childbirth who was having a very difficult labor. And often they would ask the monks or nuns to come and pray for them for a, for a safe birth. And he said, I will pray for you and do an act of truth since my birth. And then he went on, since my birth as a monk, I have not harmed a single being. By the truth of these words, May your delivery be safe. And so it was. And he became known as a kind of healer, especially for those in labor. I'm very glad the story brings in the mothers. Because it's a very male story, you know, this initiation and go kill people and all that kind of stuff. Remember this little story I told years ago. John invited his mother over to dinner. During the meal, John's mother couldn't help noticing how beautiful his roommate was. She'd been long wondered about a relationship between them. And over the course of the evening, his mother started to wonder if there was more than met their eye because John said, I know what you're thinking, Mom, but I assure you that Kelly and I are just roommates. About a week later, Kelly came to John and said, ever since your mother came to dinner, I've been unable to find our beautiful silver gravy ladle. I don't suppose you took it. He said, oh, I'll email her. So he sat down and wrote, dear mother, I'm not saying you did take a gravy ladle or not, but oddly, one has been missing ever since you were here for dinner. She wrote back and said, Dear John, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Carrie, and I'm not saying you do not. But the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the gravy ladle by now. Lesson of the day, don't lie to your mother, right? We need the mothers to come into these stories for redemption, to tell us something different. And what they tell us is that wisdom and the training of the heart can triumph over temperament and circumstance. When I was studying psychology first decades ago, the brain was considered fixed once you went through your teenage years and into early 20s, it was set. And then one of the most revolutionary things that happened in the 70s and 80s was the discovery, the watching of neuroplasticity. That yes, there's temperament, there's childhood suffering or trauma, there's the primitive brain that's called the body of fear in Buddhist psychology. But these can be transformed. There's so much 
blame in a divorce, in families, in business. He did this, she did that. And I remember when I was doing piecework in Israel and Palestine, the groups that most moved me were the bereaved mothers, both Palestinian and Israeli mothers coming together who'd lost their sons and daughters in the wars. And the former combatants for peace. I met a commander from the Israeli IDF and a commander from the Palestinian side who had been really active in battle. And they'd become really good friends. And they said, we will not do this anymore. The Buddhist texts say, he abused me. He beat me. He threw me down and robbed me. Continue to harbor such thoughts and you suffer. He abused me, he beat me, he threw me down and robbed me. Abandon these thoughts and live in love. Hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. It's Eleanor Holmes Norton standing up and defending George Wallace in court because she so deeply believed in free speech. Even this man who had sowed so much hatred, she went and stood up for him and won the case, mind you. It's Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela after Martin's church was bombed. What does it mean to put down the thoughts of blame, even if it's true? and turn toward a peaceful heart. This points to the wondrous possibility that the conflicts that plague the world can be transformed by the nobility of heart. And it's there everywhere. You know, in the Quran, there are 10 times as many descriptions of the mercy of Allah as of God's wrath. And the whole movement of restorative justice, my dear friend Jacques Verdun, who's worked for decades now doing the San Quentin Prison Project and other such things, and restorative justice is such a part of it. I believe it was Jacques who told me this story. I'd worked with him at some points of a woman whose son was killed in a street violent shooting. And in restorative justice, if people are ready and interested, those who have perpetrated violence and those who've suffered from it are invited little by little to come and meet one another. Extraordinary process. And after some time, this mother went into San Quentin and little by little got introduced to the man who'd killed her son, who was incredibly contrite and sad about it. He'd had a lot of time to reflect and he'd really done his own inner work. 
And the lifers who were there, he was one of them, knew of the story and knew of restorative justice. And they got to meet this mother as well because she saw these other guys who'd been in there for a long time who'd committed murder in many cases. And the following year, the day that memorialized that day of the year that her son was killed, they sent a message asking her to come into the prison. And together they handed her a quilt that they had sewn by hand, taking, making patches out of the blue prison uniforms. They each cut little pieces out of their shirts or pants. And they sewed them together with messages of love and atonement. And they said, we can't bring your son back. But we want you to know that we're holding you in our hearts with all that we can offer now. And they gave her this beautiful quilt that they had hand-stitched for her to sense that there was something beyond the loss of her son. Now, why am I telling you all these dramatic stories? Because I don't want you to give up on the world. And I don't want you to give up on yourself. As Barry Lopez wrote, sometimes we need a story more than food. They're dramatic and big stories. And one of the things they do is they break the trance, the spell that the world is something that we can't change, or we get caught in demonizing ourselves or others or seeing one way. And take a pause and sense what these reminded you of, something bigger. It's possible even for our troubled human life. Our troubled human world. How do we find redemption, starting a new beginner's mind? It's a question we all face in our intimate relations. Yes, you <laughs> and me, in our marriages, in our family, for sure, in our businesses, our neighborhood and community, and in the world. Exile. So many people, who do we exile from our hearts? Who do we put out of our hearts? So when people were throwing stones at Angulimala, even as a monk walking with his alms bowl, the Buddha said, bear it, noble one. 
bear it. This is necessary for the repair of the world. The Sufis put it this way. Overcome any bitterness because you were not up to the magnitude of pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the world in her heart, you are a part of her heart. And you are granted a certain measure of cosmic pain and called upon to meet it in compassion instead of self-pity. So to find redemption, you have to bear the suffering because it will be there. It's necessary. And I think of this passage from Rabbi Erwin Keller that I sent out as part of a message on taking a stand for peace. And he said, I will hold peace in my arms and share my body's breath lest peace be added to the body count. I will breathe through tears. I will swallow pride. I will bite my tongue. I will offer love without testing for deservedness. I will call for de-escalation, even when I want nothing more than to get even. And this is what's possible for the repair of the world, to bear it with dignity and nobility and the great heart of compassion. And then we have to listen to each other to become what I believe Parker Palmer called a dangerous listener to our neighbors, our teens, our family members, the person we got divorced from. As one woman told me, I will not bequeath a legacy of bitterness to my children in this divorce. I will not do it. And I think about the conflicts I've been in. My divorce was really painful. Think, oh, he's a meditation teacher. Ha, ah, compassion. It was terrible. It was agonizing. It was. You know. I think about the conflict I had with my favorite beloved teachers, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg. We taught together as if we were married for 10 years, creating these beautiful centers and so forth. And then we got into a major conflict when I moved out to the West Coast. And it was partly about, well, one part of it was, you know, I was trying to start Spirit Rock and they were trying to help start another center in the Bay Area at the same time. And it didn't feel right. And blah, blah, blah. Anyway, lots of reasons we got into it. And there was a lot of pain. It was like its own kind of divorce. And it lasted for lasted for a while and finally we called Ramdas a year or two later said would you sit with us Ramdas came and sat with Joseph and me together and mostly we just had to listen to how it was for them why what was going on and it doesn't mean it fixes it 
It doesn't even mean you have to agree, but it means becoming curious about what it's like for that other human being on this earth. Instead of judgment, as Ed Brown says, he says, always, I insisted you were alone were to blame this last instant, my eyes and heart open, and I regard you with all the tenderness and forgiveness I've withheld for so long. Heartfelt attention is an amazing thing. You know, it doesn't change everybody, but it has a kind of power to it that's mysterious. Here's a poem from Ellen Bass, one of my favorite poets ever. She lives down in Santa Cruz. I was relief once, she writes, for a doctor on vacation and got a call from a man on a windowsill. This was New York, a dozen stories up. He was going to kill himself, he said. And I replied with everything I could think of. And when nothing worked, when the guy was still determined to slide out the window and smash his delicate body on the sidewalk. Do you think, I asked, you could just postpone it till Monday when Dr. Lewis gets back? The cord that connected us, strung under the dirty streets and pizza parlors and taxi and women in sneakers carrying their high heels, that thick coiled wire waited for the waves of sound. I could almost hear him as I held my breath, imagining making that turn like a fish at the glass at the end of the tank. I matched my breath with his. I slid into the water with him and swam. Okay, he agreed. Okay. There's just something magic about that dangerous listening, about that willingness to listen in some profound way. I think again, with Jacques Verdun, who I so much admire, he helped negotiate on behalf of a group of lifers in San Quentin prison to bring the Oakland police chief in. And they wanted to talk to the police chief, the ones who'd gone through his GRIP program and changed their lives what they'd learned and asked, how can we help you when we get out? We'll meet with young people. Tell us what we need to do. Here's what we've learned. Amazing. Not enemies. But as Nelson Mandela said, it never hurts to think too well of someone. They often act the better because of it. Howard Zinn, to be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. 
if we remember the times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act and the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a benevolent direction. Followers of the way. That's the phrase in Zen. You who are the followers of the way. The most important thing to tell you tonight is that this world is full of second chances. In our life, in our world, redemption is always possible. Sometimes it's just tiny in the ways we judge ourselves. On retreats, I always tell the story of Julia Child, where she's teaching, and she says, if you're in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can always just pick it up. Who's going to know, right? You don't judge yourself or make a big deal about it. But it also means you go back to that lover or that person at work or the estranged family member or the people who have political views that are really hard. Sometimes it almost turns your stomach and you listen with an open heart. Joshu Sasaki, great Zen master who died in Los Angeles at age 106. I practiced with him when he was only 101. And a woman came to him. She was really confused because she's been doing all this Zen meditation. And she said, I feel like I'm losing my, my identity. I don't know who I am anymore. Everything is opening up. And he looked at her and he said, death, okay. Resurrection, okay, too. They're part of it, like breathing in and out. And even now, we can stop and pause and listen to the wisdom of the heart to become the one who knows, the wise one. To know that we can pause and plant new seeds. As Henry David Thoreau says, I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, but I have great faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed there, and I'm prepared to expect wonders. This is the mystery of consciousness of the world itself. It's creating itself out of nothing, you know. You have a trillion cells in your body or more. Maybe it's 37 trillion. I forget the exact number. I stopped when I got to 36. And every day your body produces 500 million, half a billion new skin cells every day and 100 billion new blood cells. It's not just the grass that keeps growing. Your body keeps renewing itself. Everything is in change. And consciousness is a waterfall, a river, an ocean of recreation again and again. 
inviting new patterns and illumination and the possibility of redemption. You can trust this power and align yourself to it. Pause again and reflect on what asks for your noble heart. The possibility of redemption. You can trust this power As Wade Davis says, despair is an insult to the imagination. The heart, the imagination, that's the great force in this world. The earth is too small a star, and we too brief a visitor upon it for anything to matter more than love. As Rumi says, ours is not a caravan of despair. I think this is carved on his tombstone in Turkey. Ours is not a caravan of despair. Though you have broken your vows a hundred times, come, come again. Become citizens of love. That's the world I want to live in. So the very last thing before we go is that I believe it was the last song that Bob Marley wrote before he died of cancer. And it has an amazing set of lines in it. It's called Redemption Song. And it's the song where he sings, Emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our mind. Now, if Bob Marley's not channeling the Buddha, I don't know who he's channeling. Emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our mind. And he goes on, won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? Because all I ever have, redemption songs, redemption songs, redemption songs. What a way to go out, Bob Marley. You know, what a gift to humanity. So I invite you to listen to Bob Marley now. And then we can take our leave for the evening. Thank you all for your kind attention.
Thank you all. Blessings in the new year. Be safe and well. Thank you, Bob Marley, for taking us out. Bob Marley and the Buddha coming together here. See you again, I hope. Bye-bye. <laughs>